Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and that means it's time for Philippians. It is the third chapter of Philippians today. This is the third week of June that we're doing this study. I'm glad that you all are here with me. I will tell you that I have been really surprised in some pretty great ways with this June study of Philippians. Um, although certainly I've read Philippians many times, I've never taught it. And to actually delve into it and teach it has been a real blessing to me. And so I hope that it has been for you all too. Um, there's so much nuance to this very short letter that Paul sends his friends in Philippi. Um, and it's, it's kind of a privilege to get to study it with you. Um, and so this third week, chapter three, is going to be good. Um, I've got a ton of material. I was taking notes and I realized I don't know that I can do this in an hour. Um, so I'm going to talk fast. So strap in. We're going to get rolling. So I want to remind you that if you are not watching this live or maybe you've just discovered this um, and you want to check out old recordings um, of what we've done, either Philippians or the things we've done in the past, like Genesis or Luke and Acts, um, you can visit our website. It's stmichael.org slash RBS. That's Rector's Bible Study. On that page, you can see old videos um, since we have been in quarantine in March um, or old audio recordings of the live classes that I did on campus at St. Michael. And those go back for years. And so if you want to check back, um, re-listen to a lesson, um, maybe re-listen to an entire series that you were present um, but perhaps want to hear it again. You know, it's kind of like the Bible. You don't just read it once. Um, you read it over and over. And because we change, we hear new things about whatever God is revealing to us. And so stmichael.org slash RBS um, is where you can get those recordings. So let's kick this off um, with a prayer and we'll get rolling. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for bringing us together today and we ask that you bless this time, bless each one of us, empty us of whatever worries or fears or anxieties that we have brought to this table and make space for you. Make space so that your spirit can fill us up. Give us inspiration, give us renewal and refreshment for what we hope to do as disciples of Jesus here in this world. Bless all of our friends who cannot be with us today in this study. Bless all those who are ill, that they may receive your healing touch and be surrounded by those who can help support them in their time of need. And Lord, we especially remember those who are near the end of their life, those who have died, that they never lose the sense of your presence. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, everyone, as a reminder, this is our digital community. And so in the comment field or the chat box, depending on whichever platform you're using, do let us know who you are and where you're from. Say hello to some friends that you see who are also watching live with us and interact. Let us know what you're thinking, make comments or ask questions in the chat field. And as always, if you would like for those questions to not be made public, um, then you can email Monica Rosser, who is moderating our chat today. Um, she'll post her email address there and send her a quick email note 
and she can pass that question or comment on to me anonymously so that I can still answer it live, but perhaps no one will know that it's you. Um, I know that some of us are a little more reticent to make that kind of question or comment public. And so we try to help everybody. Um, some of you are not reticent to make your questions or comments public and we love you for it. So everyone's here and invited and we're gonna get rolling. So chapter three, let's just have a quick recap of how we got here. Um, we got here because Paul has been put into prison. Paul is in prison in Philippi and being in prison in Philippi gives him a chance I'm sorry, I misspoke. Paul is in prison, likely in Ephesus. So being in prison in Ephesus is an opportunity for him to write to his friends in these other communities, and that's where we get this letter to the Philippians. He's writing to his friends in Philippi, and he's kind of addressing a few different things. Um, he's addressing concerns that they may have, concerns that they currently have. Um, we've noticed... Um, I think, or I've noted, that Paul's love for the Philippians is very deep. And in a sense, what we get here is evidence that the Christian community in Philippi is mostly getting this right. Other groups are not necessarily getting this Christianity as right as Paul thinks they should. Um, and so we see in, in letters like Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, there's a bit more of a sense of you're kind of off track. So come on, get back on the rails, get back on track. Um, and in Philippians, we don't really get that explicit sense that the Philippians are off track. However, what we do get and what we will see very clearly in chapter three is that Paul is concerned that the Philippians don't get off track. And so this is a bit more of a proactive letter to the Philippian church than a reactive letter that he writes to other groups. Um, and so we kind of heard yesterday that, or yesterday, last week, um, that Paul warned against false, false prophets that could lead them astray, um, also reminded them that we are unified when we seek the mind of Christ, that any person who wants to follow Jesus is unified within that identity of pursuing the mind of Christ, and that that unity is going to be more important as Paul kind of unpacks it in chapter three. And so that's how we got here. Um, last week, we had a few questions or comments I wasn't able to get to, and so we're going to kick it off with those because they'll likely help lead us into chapter three. Um, <clears throat> so Sally made the comment, um, if Paul is clear that we are to work out our salvation and humility and lay down our power for the good of our neighbors in the world, why does social justice get sort of a bad rap in Christian circles? It's a good question. Um, I think it's a very timely question right now because seeking social justice can, in our current state of affairs, kind of equal some kind of liberal agenda um, and I think it's important for us to understand that Jesus, okay, here's what I really want you to know or hear me say. Jesus is political, always. Jesus is not partisan, all right? Does that kind of make sense? Um, that's a nuance, but it's a very important nuance because we often kind of think, and I think this is a very American thing to think, 
Um, we've got this separation of church and state. We want to make sure that when we go to church, we are not talking about political things, right? That the state is over here and church is over here. Our political life is on one side of the fence and our religious or our spiritual life is on the other side of the fence. I am sympathetic to that opinion. And I think that that is a, it is culturally normative for Americans to hold that kind of dichotomy. Here's the problem. Jesus doesn't. And we might really want Jesus to do that. We might really want Jesus not to be political because, gosh, it's so much easy if we just think that Jesus is a nice person, right? That Christianity is about being kind and loving and nice and has nothing to do with a political reality. That's just not the case. Um, and if you are sitting there thinking, well, geez, Chris, no, really, Jesus isn't political. Simple question. Why was he killed? I think we can all kind of agree that Jesus was killed, right? He was executed. He actually received capital punishment. Well, why? Because he was challenging the political authority. I mean, it's pretty clear. We can over-theologize, theologize, theologize? I think it's theologize. We can over-theologize Jesus' death all we want and somehow see it as this you know, grand war of good and evil and God and the devil and all that sort of stuff. But when you really break it down and you look at what is in the Gospels, Jesus claimed authority. And the people who had authority didn't want him to. They didn't want him undermining their power and authority that was almost entirely political. Jesus was political. But Jesus is not partisan. And that is where we get confused. Because in our current political arena, almost everything is partisan. And people claim Jesus or spirituality or religion, or they criticize Jesus or spirituality or religion in order to reach a partisan end. That is the problem. And so, unfortunately... The idea of social justice has kind of fallen into that easy, lazy sort of way of it's on this side or that side and that sort of stuff. That's just, that's unfortunate because Jesus sought to include everyone. Jesus sought to tell every person, regardless of who they were or what they did, that God loved them and that they were welcome in the heavenly kingdom. Jesus, in fact, was criticized by all of the religious people of the day for including too many wrong people, right? Talking to prostitutes, healing lepers, dining with tax collectors. I mean, the list goes on and on. Jesus did all the stuff that the religious people said you're not supposed to do. That, in its deepest, most pure sense is social justice. It's where we care about everybody, right? There is a sense that every person matters. You do not lose your humanity or your personhood ever, period. Nothing that you can do, nothing you have done can separate you from God's love. 
the end. And in the purest sense, seeking after social justice is trying to make sure that our earthly systems stay within that lane where we don't ever really create a system that removes someone's humanity, removes someone's sense of identity as a beloved child of God. Every person is. And as Christians, I think it's pretty clear that we're called to remind every person that they are loved. So there we are. Um, Pat asked a question unrelated to Philippians. Um, what's the difference between heart and soul? Interesting question. And I think that that question is going to get answered as we discuss chapter three. So let's jump in because chapter three deals with a lot of um, complexity that can really hit our modern sensibilities. And we need a bit of time to unpack all that. So the scope of the lesson of chapter three is in four parts. And I am so afraid I'm not going to get to all four parts. We'll figure something out. So part one, the flesh. That's where we're going to start talking about heart and soul. So the flesh, part two, gains and losses. Part three, life's journey. And part four, citizens of heaven. Those are our four parts. The flesh, gains and losses, life's journey, and citizens of heaven. So let's jump right on in to part one, the flesh. Look at chapter three, and we're going to start at verse two. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of those <clears throat> who mutilate the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, who worship in the spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. <clears throat> Even though I, too, have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. <clears throat> As to righteousness, under the law, blameless. Pardon me, I have something caught in my throat. <clears> throat. Okay, we'll stop there. In verse 6, I'm going to read verse 6 again just because I didn't sound very good. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. All right. So Paul goes crazy in these first few verses of chapter 3 with hitting us with a whole bunch of stuff, a lot of data points. And so we're going to need to unpack these data points pretty clearly. First, I want to address the word flesh. <laughs> flesh. Flesh is that. It's kind of a delicious word. Um, for a lot of people, I bet that flesh is not a word we typically use every day. Um, but if I were to say, you know, what is flesh? When I say the word flesh, or when Paul says the word flesh, what do you think? I'm going to guess that we think of a couple different things. First, we probably think of skin, right? Or, or skin and bones, or kind of the flesh of our body, or maybe even meat, kind of the flesh of an animal, meat that we would eat. Um, and we also might think of something a bit more kind of theoretical or, or social. Think if a movie or TV show was advertised with 
flesh as a word that was emphasized very clearly, what would we think? I mean, I think we would think nakedness, nudity, sexuality, that kind of stuff, right? So in our current context, I'm going to just kind of postulate that we've got two relatively primary ways of understanding flesh, right? It's either like flesh, flesh, like skin and bones kind of stuff, or meat, or it talks about kind of the sin of the flesh, that kind of sexuality that is perhaps gratuitous or sort of ugly or dirty, okay? So that's probably where most of us land with flesh. Paul has a different idea of what flesh actually means. Paul intends that term flesh to mean kind of a three-layered idea. You know, so most of the time we get three deeper meanings of flesh beyond what we might think on the surface. So first, I want to talk about flesh as meaning a physical descent or hereditary, okay? So at this point in time, when Paul's writing this letter, there are a lot of Jewish people who believe that their genealogy matters, that if they know their genealogy and they can prove their genealogy very clearly, that they, in a sense, are better Jews than other Jews. And that's not a difficult idea for us to understand, right? There are many, many ways in which we all try to get in touch with our genealogy. And if in some way we are have a unique genealogy, then we often celebrate that, right? Maybe we're descent, descendants of a famous person or a powerful ruler or a um, popular leader in some way. Or maybe we're descendants of a group of people that did a really good thing at some point in the past. Or maybe we're descendants of a group of people that did some bad stuff in the past. However it is, knowing our genealogy helps us to perhaps define ourselves, right? For most people, their genealogy really defines who they are, their role, their place. We get that. And at this point in time, the Jews were really all about this genealogy. You had a certain status or cachet if you could draw your genealogy back to an important person, or hey, even better, to one of the 12 tribes of Israel, like one of Jacob's 12 sons, right? Because then you've got a direct line to Abraham, right? So if you know and can show all of that sort of lineage, you're kind of golden, right? You're sort of the best kind of Jew. And so when people in the community, Jews, lose that lineage in some way. Maybe they are born, maybe they're orphaned and they don't know their lineage. Maybe they are born out of wedlock and so their lineage is kind of denied to them. Maybe they are, in a sense, mixed when it comes to lines of lineage, which means that lineage doesn't count as much, right? Do you see all this stuff? It's kind of like math. The more you can add on, the better you are and the more prideful you can be about it. And Paul says, no. Paul says in Christ, all that stuff that mattered a lot to us does not matter. When we look at what Paul says, he is a member of the people of Israel, a 
a, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. Paul, in effect, claims the top lineage you can claim. I mean, the tribe of Benjamin is as good as it gets. And Paul is of that tribe and can prove it. And he has used that privilege to his advantage, right? His excellent education, his Roman citizenship, being schooled with the best rabbis of the day. Paul's got the pedigree to prove that he can be as prideful as anybody about his flesh. But that kind of ethnic identity is very problematic because, as I noted in the beginning, Jesus says, everyone counts. Everyone is in. As a child of God, everyone is loved. No one more than any other. And so this kind of sin of the flesh is important for us to push aside. Number two, physical identity. This is very similar to lineage, all right? So this is not wildly different than lineage, but there's a nuance here because it's, it's genuinely about the way someone looks. So we're going to go into a little complicated section right here. So just hang with me. Just, just hear me out. I'm going to start with something that is completely easy and no one will object to, that we are all uniquely biased. Ha <laughs> ha, that's easy today right now. I mean, isn't that great? Um, that's something that we all can just be like, sure, of course, yes, we're all uniquely biased. Um, we don't like this because we all like to think that we are not biased, right? We like to think that we are logical and rational and fair. Let me just start with, a biological bias, all right, that is just true. And you just, it, you really can't deny it, and none of us can. Um, so let me put this in kind of a modern context. It has been proven that we implicitly trust people who look more like us. I am not making some kind of judgment. I am simply saying, biologically speaking, we have a preference for people who look like us. And doesn't that make sense when we put that in a biological context? Context. Think about animals, right? Think humanity 10, 20,000 years ago. Along with ancient humans and other animals that we know about thinking animals, basically in the world, when we are kind of insecure in a sense, we're either being hunted or we are hunting, right? We are either on the offensive or the defensive. We're never just resting. There's always something going on in the complex world that we live in. And so if we have this baseline fundamental insecurity that is a very real thing, how do we seek more security? It is proven that in our reptilian brain, right, that's the core smallest most ancient part of our human brains, we prefer people who look like us because we are most likely closely related to people who look most like us. And if we are cl more closely related to someone, then that means we are less likely to be hurt or killed by that other person, right? Just straight up biology. There's a reason babies 
look like their dads when they're first born. Why? Because we know who the mom is, right? The mom literally just had the baby come out of, of them. But male men were not always so yoked to women as they might be in a modern context. And so imagine a, an animal um, group like a lion pride, right? If that child does not favor their biological father at first, that biological father may feel threatened by the newborn and kill it. And there are just countless ways that that occurs in nature with other animals. We like to think of ourselves as above that. And in some ways, we can be above that. But we have to strive to be above that. At our most basic, we are still like that because we are still animal. That's okay. And so I want to kind of have a moment here where we understand that that very basic bias is real. And if that very basic bias is real, then what Paul is getting at makes a lot more sense. Because effectively, Paul is warning the Philippians not to prefer people who look physically like you. Now, what does this really mean when the rubber hits the road in the Philippian community? We have a glimpse of what Paul is getting at when we bring a portion of Galatians up next to this letter of Philippians. In the Galatian community, what has happened is Christian Jews have infiltrated their community and they have begin, begun to teach that Christians, ah, I'm sorry, that anyone who follows Jesus is only doing it half right. That in order to do it wholly right, one has to both follow Jesus and follow Jewish tradition and law, the Torah. You put those both together and you get the right way to do this. And doesn't that make sense? Because Jesus is Jewish. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jewish messianic identity. And so, in a sense, it kind of makes sense that you've got to be Jewish and follow Jesus for everything to be right. Paul, early on, knows that's not true. That Jesus would has never made it a point that you've got to be a lawful, perfect Jew in order to follow him. In fact, there are many examples in the Gospels where Jesus does all kinds of stuff that breaks Jewish law and tradition because he puts people above the law. And so Paul has simply followed suit and said, listen, people come before law. And so when the rubber hits the ground in the community, in the Galatian community, Paul has said, it is not necessary to be Jewish in order to follow Jesus. And here's why it matters how we look. Because part of the Jewish identity is grounded in circumcision. Circumcision represents physically a promise that the Jewish community makes to God. And that's where we get the kind of third 
idea of flesh is physical uniqueness. Um, before we get there, just a quick note. We see in that portion um, at the beginning of chapter 3 that Paul says, beware of the dogs. That might sound a little strange, so I just want to kind of make a little note about what that means. So in the Galatian community, these Jews who have infiltrated and begun to say, hey, listen, you cannot be follow Jesus without being Jewish too, they refer to the Gentiles who follow Jesus but are not Jewish, follow me, as dogs. So they are dogs until they are both Jewish and follow Jesus. Paul has flipped that on its head. And he said, beware of the dogs, meaning beware of the Jews who claim you have to be Jewish to follow Jesus. He's used their derogatory term against them. And he is saying, you know how they call the Gentiles dogs? The real dogs are the ones who do not believe that following Jesus is enough. All right. So let's move on to physical uniqueness. So I mentioned a second ago that the mark of a Jewish person, obviously a Jewish male, is circumcision. And this is really important because it had been ritualized, right? Paul even says it. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Jewish boys are ritually circumcised eight days after their birth, marking them as different than other groups. And that physical marker persisted for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. The interesting detail here is that was a culture marker as well. So before the before a group of Semitic peoples became Jewish, pretty much all the Semitic peoples circumcised their boys, um, which is why when you go into the Middle East, really all of the Semitic peoples in the Middle East, regardless if they're Jewish or not, have a tradition of male circumcision because that was more of a cultural thing than a religious signifier, but it definitely became absolutely necessary for a good Jew to be circumcised. And what's interesting about this is that this was done at the very beginning of life. The literal mark of the flesh became more important over time than what that mark actually represented. I'll say that in a different way. When Paul is writing this letter, he believes that the Jewish leaders have now made the physical act more important than what the physical act represents, right? The physical act of circumcision is only good insofar as it actually fulfills the promise that it's meant to fulfill. When God says to Abraham, circumcision will mark you as a chosen people, God's not saying, hey, I just simply need you to be circumcised. God does not care if you are circumcised. No. And what actually is happening is that the Jewish people are meant to make a promise, to reciprocate to God the promise God makes first to them. And that is forged with this physical act of circumcision. But it doesn't matter at all if that physical act is not followed up with a lifetime of commitment to that promise. Does that make sense? Um, think about it this way. In a modern context, in a Christian context, 
there has always been a debate between kind of older Christian traditions and more modern Christian traditions around the idea of baptism. In older traditions, like, say, in the Episcopal Church, infant baptism has been part of it from the beginning. And we still do infant baptism far more often than we do adult baptism. And many of our sister denominations, our sister Christian groups, can look upon infant baptism critically and say, baptism is meant to be undergone by a person who chooses to follow Jesus. And so that implies necessarily, or the logic is, if you can't make a conscious choice to follow Jesus, you should not be baptized. And so an infant cannot be baptized yet because they are not aware of the choice that they make. Here's where the choice and the promise can kind of get mixed up. In our tradition, we still baptize infants or very young children who can't make a conscious choice to follow Jesus because as a family, we make a promise that that baptism is the beginning of a lifetime journey following Jesus. It's not in itself the special magic act. In the same way that for the Jews, circumcision alone was not a special magic moment, it was simply the starting point, the promise that a family made for a lifetime of learning and formation. The problem with infant baptism comes when people mistakenly think that baptizing someone is like a get-out-of-hell-free card, right? Your baptism alone, that act itself, although sacramental, is not a get-out-of-hell-free card. That is not what that means. That is a moment when a commitment is made. It's the starting point. And so anyone who thinks they got to get their kid baptized or else maybe they're going to go to hell, stop it. Or if perhaps someone thinks all I have to do to make sure my kid goes to heaven is get them baptized, no, 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 no. You totally misunderstand what that moment actually is. That moment is a commitment or a promise. It's as if a marriage is a good, solid marriage simply because you had a wedding. No, a wedding is not a marriage. A wedding is the point at which two people commit themselves to each other for a lifetime. That commitment is made again and again every day. And healthy marriages are born out of intentionality to recommit to one another in love every single day. So those moments where you might say a nice prayer or do a nice thing or do a good blessing or use the water or whatever are very important because they represent the starting place, but they alone do not complete the race. All right. So we have finished the first section. Oh, it's already 11 of five. I'm running out of time. Okay. So a reminder that we want to know that you're here. We want to know what you're thinking. So make comments or ask questions in the chat boxes, um, either below or to the side, depending on the platform you're using, or send Monica an email, and we'll make sure that we can get as many of these questions answered as we can in this time. But I'm pressing on because we're going to find out in a second. Paul tells us we've got to press on. Okay, so section two of chapter three, gains and losses. We're going to start with verse seven. 
Verse 7 says, Yet whatever gains I had, this is still Paul talking, yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. All right. This is decently simple to understand and incredibly difficult to live. So let's parse this out. Paul makes a stunning claim in these opening verses. He has everything. He has every advantage, every privilege. He is as skilled as anyone. He can claim to be as good a Jew as any other Jew. And everything he has, his knowledge, his pedigree, his positions, his abilities, would seem like a fantastic win. But nothing matters except his faith and identity in Christ. It's as if Paul has his good accounting ledger right in front of him. You ready? I know a lot of you are accountants. No. Um, but just hang with me. You've got kind of this clear accounting ledger, right? You've got your credits and your debits. You've got your gains and your losses. And what Paul says is he's listed out every one of his credits, every one of his gains. And it's a good list. And it's as if in one fell swoop, Paul moves all of those gains over to the losses column. Everything that the world says is most important and most valuable, he says, no. That now becomes a debit. That becomes a liability. It becomes a loss. And he just X's the whole thing out because he said the only thing that we need, the only thing that is truly valuable in this life is our identity in Christ. That's it. None of this other stuff matters. None of this other stuff matters. Everything is about our identity, our rootedness, our faithfulness to Christ. That's it. Paul makes this incredibly poignant message. And I want to say that in that world, that would have been wildly progressive, right? Because everything in the Roman world is based on authority and privilege and wealth and power. Paul says, hey, I got it right? I know all this stuff. None of it matters. None of it matters. The only thing that matters is our faith and our identity in Christ. It's kind of hard to hear, I think. I mean, I often say that the gospel is hardest to hear when you are affluent and secure and wealthy and powerful when you're poor, you kind of have nothing to lose, right? When you don't have much, you don't risk much. And so the gospel is kind of like, okay, that sounds good, right? I mean, if really you're sort of, think of the fishermen, 
right, on the shore of Galilee. You've got these fishermen who don't have much at all. So when Jesus says, hey, follow me, okay. I mean, it's a commitment. Don't get me wrong. It is a real commitment, but it's kind of easier to leave a little, right? It's a lot harder to leave or push aside or push down a lot. That's why you've got leaders like, say, a Nicodemus who really, really struggles and who never actually is kind of a public follower. He's got a lot to lose. I mean, think about like Matthew as the tax collector, right? Committing to being one of Jesus' disciples, that's a big deal because a tax collector would have been wealthy, would have had a huge amount of security. Now, they wouldn't have been well-liked, and we see that in the Gospels, but eh, at least it would have had a lot of stuff. It would have had a lot of security and affluence. For us, we, we, those of us watching this right now, on, on the whole, right, with very few exceptions, but almost all of us watching this, are in that category of powerful, authoritative, affluent, well-educated, secure, all of the things that the world says are important, we've got. And now, we, many of us happen to live in a, in a wildly skewed reality where we may be in very clear about what we don't have, but on the scale of the globe, we are all doing very well. And so for all of us watching this, it is a difficult call, a difficult journey to really put aside all of those things that the world says is important in order to root ourselves most deeply in our Christian identity. Now, I want to be very clear here. Money, affluence, power, authority, they are not bad on their own. All right. Do not hear me say, you know, money is evil. That's not it. What I really want you to hear and what I think Paul wants you to hear is that all of those things are serious, major temptations. They can make us very vulnerable to getting off this Christian path. Look at Paul himself. Paul struggles the whole time to really stay on this committed Christian path because he's kind of got an easy way, right? I mean, he can sort of have a great life, but he's made this choice. And he wants to make sure that we all understand that this is not a cheap choice, that everything we have needs to be made contained in a box, so to speak. And it's okay to have worldly authority and power and wealth. What is dangerous is that we can be tempted to believe that it is most important, that it is what defines us and our value and our own humanity. And it is not. And Paul wants to make that crystal clear. All right. I'll just kind of end by, nah, I'm done. I have to move on. Um, I do see that we have one question. Um, do we first need grace and then faith? So all of the free will, good deeds in the world won't get us to heaven. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, let me, 
Mm, it's a good question. And let me answer it, I think, in the next section. Um, because Paul, remember, Paul's not just kind of taking one question and answering it. Paul is working on a continuum, right? So in a sense, remember, Paul's a lawyer. He's a canon lawyer. And so when he writes, even when he writes letters like this, he is systematic in the way that he presents these ideas, which means they kind of build on one another. So if we look at chapter three, really the entire letter, but if we just take chapter three, Paul makes one point in order to make the next point, in order to make the next point, and he continues to build as he goes. So by the end, the point that he makes, which is really the climax of the letter, the climax of the letter is really the end of chapter three. He cannot just make that statement, that claim, without having effectively walked the path to get there. So hold on to this idea of kind of grace and works, because I think we're going to get there in the third section. So keep them coming. Questions, comments, I like them. All right, so let's just jump into this third section because I really want to get to the fourth section. So section three, life's journey. Let's jump back just a bit, verse 11, and then we're going to go through verse 14. Paul says, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead, right? He's finishing a previous comment. And he says, not that I have already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. I can sum up this third section very simply. It ain't over till it's over. That's it. That is what Paul is telling us. It's not over until it's over. So there are plenty of ways to make this more theologically complex and nuanced. But I think Paul's message is easy to understand, very hard to practice, right? Because if you hold together that section three sense of privilege and entitlement and put it together with this idea that it's not over till it's over, we can along this Christian journey, right? Oh, I'm sorry, what I should say is section one says we've got this moment where we make a commitment and that commitment gets us on the path, right? And we start that journey. But as part of the journey, we've got to recognize that all of the advantages we have in the world, those entitlements, are not what we need in order to pursue Christ. So we have them. Don't beat yourself up about them, but just hold them over here, right? Keep them almost separate from this Christian journey. Then when you're on this journey, it can be very tempting many times on the journey of our entire lives that those entitlements and those strengths and those worldly powers can kind of come back in and we can be tempted to skew off this Christian path in order to pursue those worldly goods. Paul says here, the race is not over until it's over. And I want to kind of put this simply in three ways. Our faith is then the promise of the resurrection, the spiritual life of God forever. 
we will be with God in wholeness forever. That's the promise. And two, our discipleship is about that whole life's journey toward the goal. And three, the journey takes a lifetime. No one, no matter how faithful or holy they became, is finished until their life is over. Because we have been given the gift of this life, and this gift of life is given for us to be able to struggle and work and strive toward this amazing goal of being in full oneness and love with God. Okay, so this is kind of like a sports metaphor, right? Let's consider a sports metaphor here. One in which, and I think it'll make more sense. Consider a foot race, right? A track and field race. Until someone crosses the line, the race is not over. Imagine that you're kind of born, boom, you're off the blocks, and you die, you cross the finish line, right? Until you cross that line, the race is not over. And so it doesn't matter how far ahead or behind you are in that race, the point of the race is finishing. And here's where the world comes in. Because if you let the world influence you too much, you begin to think that the point of the race is winning. Paul says no. Paul says the point of the race is finishing. And that means that you go and you strive and you work until you finish. If you've ever known a professional athlete, most professional athletes, there are obvious exceptions, but most professional athletes will say, it's not about winning or losing. It's about finishing and finishing as well as you can. And it, I started to think through this idea. And I remember um, a couple years ago, there was a marathon race where the person who was kind of racing toward the end, there were two people and one of them basically collapsed very near the finish line. And the person who would have easily won stopped went back and grabbed this other person and they crossed together. And I couldn't remember what that race was. And sort I started Googling around and I was reminded of multiple different races where people either carried a competitor across the finish line or even pushed a competitor across the finish line so that the other person who had collapsed won. And if you haven't seen this recently, I remember it when I was a kid, 1992, the Barcelona Olympics, um, Derek Redmond was running the, I think it was the 400 meters, and he pulls a hamstring halfway through the race and collapses. And he finally, the race is totally over for everyone else, but he is yet to finish. And he gets up and he is hobbling and he is hurting and he is trying to get, finish the race. And the entire stadium just erupts with cheers for this man to get across the finish line. And then his dad comes in, com comes out from the infield, puts his son's arm over his shoulder and helps him finish the race. And I'll tell you what, if you want, I mean, I got teary watching it this morning. And so if you want just a real feel good moment, go back, Google Derek Redman, 1992 Olympics, and you can watch this 30 second clip. And it is stunning because it is, at once, sportsmanship at its best. But on the other hand, 
it is such a beautiful metaphor for what this whole Christian journey is really all about. It would be easy for us to believe that we run this race alone. In fact, I think a lot of Christian theology recently has developed that focuses so heavily on individual salvation, individual relationship with Jesus. That is important, but it's not everything because we are a community. We help each other. When we fall, someone's there to pick us up. When someone else falls, we are there to pick them up. And we are running this race together. We are striving and pressing toward the goal together. We support one another along the way in countless different ways. But that support is critical. Not only do we need support, but I think for our own good, we need to support others as well. It gets back to what Paul says from the very beginning. Every person counts. Every person is loved by God. And we are called to help and support and love every person, period. No exceptions. No one ever loses their humanity. No one ever is far enough away from God that they do not deserve our love to. All right. So that's the end of section three. Apparently, I'm talking too much because we don't have very many questions or comments um, this week, but that's all right. This is some heavy stuff. And in fact, in the last seven minutes, we're going to get to what is very much the climax of the entire letter to the Philippians. So this fourth section, I'm titling Citizens of Heaven. So stick with me. We're going to go to verse 17. Verse 17, Paul says, Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. For many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. I have often told you of them, and now I tell you even with tears, their end is destruction. Their God is the belly, and their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And it is from there that we are expecting a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humiliation that it may be conformed to the body of his glory by the power that also enables him to make all things subject to himself. So as I said, this is the theological climax of the letter. Paul is very aware of the absolute most difficult challenge facing any follower of Jesus. How do we live in this world, but not be of this world, right? I mean, that's the crux of it all, right? That is, in its purest sense, the challenge that faces all of us as disciples of Jesus. How do we live in this world, but not be of it? So Paul makes his opinion of our kind of dual citizenship in a sense, pretty clear that those who live for this world only, who live to satisfy their base desires, glory in their temporal successes, will find that their end is destruction. Yikes. I mean, in other words, what Paul is really saying is when this world, the earthly things, become everything that matters to us, 
then we've lost. We, we have nothing. Right now, we may seem to have everything, but in the end, we will have nothing. And Paul doesn't want that for any of us. In other words, or on the other side of that coin, those of us who live and root and anchor ourselves in the promise of Jesus will be transformed beyond this world, transformed beyond the earthly reality that we know into a resurrection reality in the future. Remember, Paul at the very beginning says, we are striving toward a resurrection life. And Paul says, I've not achieved it yet, right? I'm still here with you. I am still in the world. But I have committed myself to not being of this world. And the way that he puts this is that we are citizens of heaven. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. Citizenship is important here as an identity. In the Roman world, where the Philippians are living, where Paul is living, citizenship is, is kind of everything, right? Paul, as a Roman citizen, has incredible privileges that most Roman people do not have. Most people living in the Roman Empire do not have. That's a better way of putting that. Paul understands how great citizenship is, how, what kind of value and privilege citizenship affords him. And what he's saying here is, that stuff does not matter. We are not defined by our earthly pilgrim, our earthly citizenship, our worldly citizenship. We are defined by our heavenly citizenship. Now, we get this. Because we, in a sense, are in this incredibly powerful world. We don't call it an empire, but this nation, sort of like the Roman world, we've got like an American world, right? We are citizens of America. And it's not something that's promised in the future. I mean, that's right now, right? We, we are. Um, even though some of us perhaps watching this are not technically citizens, the majority of us are. Our citizenship is here in America. And being an American citizen is incredibly important to almost all of us who live here. However, Paul is saying that citizenship means nothing in God's reality. That our true citizenship is meant to be rooted in heaven. As citizens of heaven, we are to be something different right now. And here's perhaps the theological point of everything that Paul is trying to communicate to his friends in Philippi. We are in this world, yes, but we are citizens of heaven, which means that we are not of this world anymore, that our faith in Christ, our striving in our faith in Christ has changed us for good. And here's what's really important, I think, for us to understand. Paul, just like Jesus, is not promising something in the future. Heaven is not some reality after death. No. Heaven is a reality we live into now. We are not going to be citizens of heaven. No, in our faithfulness, we are citizens of heaven now. That's a profound idea. 
Because those of us who like to compartmentalize our faith identity, our Christian discipleship, away from the rest of the world, we struggle. Because Paul says we can't. We're in it right now. We must, out of our faithfulness to Christ, out of our love for Christ, out of the salvation we receive from Christ, begin to act differently in this world than other people do. We cannot just use good words. We cannot just believe good things. We put this into practice, which gets to the idea of kind of grace and works. Um, Later on, theologians begin to unpack this idea that Paul presents here in Philippians in a way that I think makes a lot of sense to me. We are not saved by doing good works. However, when we are saved through faith by grace, we cannot help but do good works. And so here's the problem. Good works are a sign of real faith in those who are faithful. But can people who don't have any faith identity do good works? Sure. I mean, doing good works is not a terribly difficult thing to do. So for us, the discernment that we undertake in our own journeys is how to continually balance being in the world and not of the world. And this is not something that we can just decide and be good for the rest of our lives. No, the race is not over. We, right now, are alive. That means our race is not over. We are still in the race. And do not be tempted, even though you may be far ahead, to stop racing, to stop striving, to stop working. Because God calls us to a lifetime of learning and of practice and of love. And we're still in that race. All right, my friends. Next week, we do chapter four. It's the last of this four-week series. I love being with you. It's one of my favorite moments in the entire week. Um, Reminder, let us know you were here. Share this video. If you think there's someone in your life, family, friends, neighbors, whomever, who may get a lot out of this series, please feel free to share it. That's why we do it and make it digitally available to anyone is because we want this to be part of our own community discipleship. So share it, tell people about it. We'll be back together live 10.30 next Wednesday morning with the fourth and final chapter of Philippians. May God bless you all for a wonderful week. I'll see you soon.